Blaise Pascal was certainly one of the smartest men to ever live. He was a 17th century Frenchman, uh, probably best known today for his work in math and in physics. He's got a bunch of rules and theorems and so forth named after him. Uh, he's credited with inventing the first calculator, which was a precursor to the modern computer. Really smart guy. But perhaps his greatest work, certainly he saw it this way, his greatest work was not a book about math or a book about science. It was a work of theology and Christian apologetics. Now, sadly, he did not get to finish that work before he died. So what we're left with are really a series of notes and um, various aphorisms. Uh, it's become known as the Pensee, which means the thoughts, the thoughts of Pascal. And the Pensee are full of all kinds of insights. If you're familiar with Pascal's wager, uh, this is where you will find his, his wager. Uh, but it's also got a number of insights, not just into, uh, into the Bible and into theology, but a number of insights into human nature, including this, which is very relevant to what we are learning from Psalm 16. Listen to Pascal. All men seek happiness. This is without exception. Whatever different means they employ, they all tend to this end. The cause of some going to war and of others avoiding it is the same desire in both attended with different views. The, the will never takes the least step but toward this object. This is the motive of every action of every man, even of those who hang themselves. Pascal says, all men seek happiness. Note, he does not say we ought to seek happiness, nor does he say we seek happiness but not, ought not to. No, he says this is just how we are. We are happiness-seeking creatures, and every act of the will, every decision we make, tends in this direction. It's aimed at what we think will make us happy. All men seek happiness all the time, inescapably, unavoidably. It's just how God made us. It's how human nature works. And actually, this is something scripture itself teaches us. Think about how Jesus summarized the great commandments, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the first great commandment. And then the second, Jesus says, is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. Think about that, to love your neighbor as yourself. How you love and care for yourself is the model for loving and caring for others. How you love yourself by seeking your own happiness, that's a model for how you are to love others. Jesus doesn't command us to love ourselves. He assumes that we already do, and indeed he treats it as a good thing. Love yourself, and now love your neighbor as yourself. Loving yourself and seeking your own happiness, those are just two sides of the same coin. Really two ways, you could say, of saying the same thing. The issue then is not, will you seek happiness, because you will. The issue is, where will you seek happiness? How will you seek happiness? Now, last week we started looking at Psalm 16, and this is really what David's psalm is about. It is about happiness and where we seek happiness, how we go about this quest for happiness that we are all on. Will we seek happiness in the true God or in idols? See, David really agrees with Pascal. All people seek joy. All people seek pleasure. All people seek happiness. 
But David shows us we'll either seek happiness in the true God or in idols. And he shows us those who seek their happiness in idols will find themselves deceived and disappointed. David says, Yahweh, the Lord, is my highest good. That means he is my source of happiness. And that's a source of happiness that will not let me down. Yahweh comes through on his promises. But then David also says in this psalm, those who go after idols multiply their miseries. It's interesting. C.S. Lewis makes much the same point uh, in, his, uh, in his book, Weight of Glory. This is what he says. Listen to what Lewis has to say, his wisdom. Lewis says, the New Testament has a lot to say about self-denial, but not about self-denial as an end in itself. Think of those passages where Jesus says, you can't be my follower unless you deny yourself and come after me. Lewis says, we are told to deny ourselves and take up our crosses in order that we may follow Christ. And nearly every description of what we shall ultimately find if we do so contains an appeal to desire an appeal to our desire for happiness. Why take up your cross and follow Jesus? Because that's the pathway of ultimate happiness. Lewis says, if there lurks in most modern minds the notion that to desire our own good and to earnestly hope for the enjoyment of it is a bad thing, I submit that that notion has crept in from Kant and from the Stoics and is no part of Christian faith. The idea that you shouldn't seek your own happiness, that you should suppress that desire for your own good, that's really a pagan idea comes from the pagan philosophers. Indeed, Lewis says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Something greater has been offered to us, but we settle for the lesser because we can't even imagine the greater. Lewis's point is don't settle. Don't settle for lesser joys when greater joys are offered. Do you know why you sin? Do you know why you fall into sin? It's because you settle. The reason you fall into sin is because you are too easily satisfied. And so you settle for lesser pleasures, counterfeit pleasures, fleeting pleasures, when in reality, a much greater happiness, a much greater pleasure is offered to you. A lasting, solid, deep pleasure is offered to you in the gospel. It could be yours. So again, you see what Lewis is telling you to do here? Don't suppress your desire for happiness. Instead, elevate that desire, intensify that desire. If you want to be happy, which you do, really go after it. Go after it with everything. Seek deep and lasting happiness in the one and only place it can be found. And don't settle for anything less. Don't go after the mirage of happiness that idols offer. Go after the real thing, which Yahweh offers to those who trust in him. Psalm 16 is really David's expression of his commitment 
to seek joy in nothing less and nothing other than God himself. It is an expression of his conviction that in God alone we can find lasting and settled joy. It's an expression of his confidence in God as an overflowing fountain of joy who desires to share his own joy with his people. We serve a happy God and so we should be a happy people. God is eternally and infinitely happy. He wants to share his happiness with us. And so David tells us here, in our quest for happiness, go for the greatest happiness of all. Go for the greatest joy there is. And Psalm 16 really shows us how. It's really a recipe for finding joy, a roadmap to eternal joy. Psalm 16 is all about joy. We saw that last week. But we also need to see Psalm 16 is all about Jesus. I started to show you that last week, but I want to continue that this morning. Psalm 16 is all about joy, but it's also all about Jesus. And in fact, Jesus and joy go together. That's really David's whole point. But we need to see how David fuses together Jesus and joy, how he brings them together. And this is really the key for David. Joy and Jesus become one in the resurrection. And we're going to see that's heavily freighted with all kinds of implications for how we live our lives and how we go about seeking joy, how we go about seeking happiness. Joy and Jesus come together in the resurrection. That's what David's going to show us here. But it's really important for us to work our way to that conclusion to see how David gets there. So I want to pick up in verse 7. That's where I left off last week. And I want us to jump right into David's train of thought sort of midstream here. What does David say in verse 7? I bless the Lord who gives me counsel in the night. My heart instructs me. So on this pathway to joy, where does David go to seek wisdom? Where does he go to find wisdom and counsel about how to seek joy? Well, he goes to the Lord. The Lord gives him counsel. How does the Lord give him counsel? Well, it's through the word, obviously. Right here, this is God's counsel. This is God's instruction. This is God's wisdom. God's word is truth. This is the truth about wisdom right here. And David says, that's where I go. I go to the Lord for counsel. He's already said that God is his highest good. God's counsel, like all his other gifts, is good. That's where David's going to seek joy. He's going to seek it uh, from the Lord, he's going to seek the Lord's counsel about how to find joy. But then that makes the next line all the more puzzling. And here we have to take a little bit of a, uh, of a detour uh, because this is really, really interesting. And I think it's, it's worth exploring what David means. David says, my heart also instructs me in the night. So I seek counsel from the Lord and my heart also instructs me in the night. My heart instructs me. What does David mean? Has David suddenly gone all Disney on us? <laughs> Follow your heart. Listen to your heart. Is, is David channeling Oprah? You know, it's true. Disney and Oprah, the message of the culture, the culture will tell you, follow your heart. Listen to your heart. Follow your heart. That's the advice that the world gives. Is David falling in line with that? Well, what's the problem with that advice? Follow your heart. It doesn't take into account the fact that most of what is in our hearts is junk and garbage and trash. It's evil. And so just to just have, give that advice, follow your heart, 
that makes no sense. It's not going to lead to any kind of lasting happiness. Disney and Oprah have it wrong. But then what is David saying? Well, it's interesting, Disney will give you that message, follow your heart, but you know, there's, there's somebody else who used that language on occasion, follow your heart. It's the great Christian author, J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien in his Lord of the Rings occasionally help characters who speak this way. Characters like Aragorn or Gandalf, and if you don't know the stories, I just tell you, those are good guys. These are good guys who are speaking this way, about following your heart. So here's the question. Can you trust your heart? Well, the answer is it depends on what is in your heart. You know, usually we don't say follow your heart because what we want to say is follow Jesus, follow the Holy Spirit, follow Scripture. And everything that your heart might tell you has got to be tested against that, that standard. And that's true. And even though Scripture tells us that as believers we have new hearts, we are still sinners, and so we can never completely trust our hearts. You can't even completely trust your new heart. Your heart will lead you astray. You can't completely trust your heart to lead you in the right way. Your emotions are never infallible. Not every emotion should be validated. Some emotions should be challenged and questioned and repented of. You can't um, you can't just trust your heart's desires all the time because sometimes your heart desires the wrong thing. But this is what David is getting at, and I think it's also what uh, Tolkien is getting at when he uses the, the, this language. When David says, my heart instructs me, what does he mean? Well, if you have made the effort to fill your heart with good things, if you have memorized scripture and built up a storehouse of truth in your heart and filled your heart with God's wisdom because you've been taking counsel with the Lord your heart is filling up with the Lord's counsel with the Lord's wisdom then there is a sense in which your heart can instruct you in the night even as David's did you can trust your heart to a point you can trust your heart if your heart is a trained heart a transformed heart, a discipled heart. Now, everything still has to be tested against the Lord's counsel in Scripture, no doubt. But because David has been filling his heart with the law and the wisdom of God, he can say, my heart instructs me. Go back to Psalm 1. How does the Psalter open? Psalm 1, David says, he delights in the law of the Lord. So in his heart, he delights in the law of the Lord. And he says, on his law, he meditates day and night. Now, a man who delights in the law of God in his deepest being, a man who is continually meditating on God's law day and night, that kind of man can listen to his heart because his heart is full of divine truth. His inner dialogue, if you will, the, the conversation he carries on with himself is going to be full of scriptural truth. When he talks to himself, he speaks truth. And that's the key thing here. That's what David is saying. My heart instructs me. That is to say, when I have this conversation with myself, I speak truth. You can see this actually elsewhere in the psalm, uh, in the Psalter. Psalms 42 and 43 are a good example of this, where David's own heart instructs him, where he speaks to himself, and he speaks to himself truth and wisdom. Now, let me add a little twist to this. That word translated heart, that is an attempt in English to capture the gist of what's there in the Hebrew, but actually in the Hebrew, the word is guts. Sometimes it's translated as kidneys or reins, but I like guts. My gut 
instructs me in the night. See, for the ancient Israelites, the seat of desire and the seat of emotion was found in the gut. And we sometimes still talk that way. If you get excited, you talk about how you have butterflies in your stomach. That's kind of where you experience emotion. The Israelites were, uh, they were locked in on this. And so they saw the seat of emotion and desire as the gut. And actually, you see this in the Old Covenant sacrificial system. Maybe sometimes uh, you've read through Leviticus and uh, you've noticed this. In the book of Leviticus, you have all these different types of animal offerings described that would be brought to the altar at the tabernacle. And, of course, those animals represented the worshipers. And so what happens to the animal is symbolic of what's happening to the worshiper. And in those sacrifices, as they are described in the book of Leviticus, the animal would be devoted to God by being placed on the altar. And if you, if you read it carefully for the details, you will see many times the head and the guts of the animal get special attention as being offered to God. The head and the guts of the animal. Again, you read all about this in Leviticus. I'm not going to go into detail with that here, but I just want to point this out to you. The guts are offered completely on the altar along with the head. And that was to serve as a sign of the worshiper's total surrender and total consecration to God. His head and his guts are offered to God. His thinking and his feeling are given over to God. Your head and your guts should be consecrated to the Lord. Uh, our emotions and our desires need to be offered to God and submitted to him. Uh, modern people tend to think that emotions are autonomous. You just feel what you feel and your emotions are not accountable or answerable to anything outside of themselves. Scripture shows us otherwise. There are good and evil emotions. And the point I think we can derive from this in the sacrificial system and the way the Bible uses that language of guts here and, and elsewhere, when you are consecrated to God, when you offer yourself continually to God as a living sacrifice, then yes, you can be instructed by your heart or by your gut in the nighttime because your guts are devoted to God. The godly man can trust his heart to a degree, not, not totally as if it were infallible, but to a degree he can trust his heart. He can follow his gut. He can act on gut instinct because he has consecrated his heart and his guts to God. David would say, do your guts belong to God? Do your emotions belong to God? Do your desires, does your heart belong to God? Now let me go one step further with our little excursus here. I sometimes hear people say, you know, the problem in the modern world is that we've replaced reason with emotion. And so today the big problem is people feel their way through life instead of reasoning their way through life. If we could just get away from feeling and back to reasoning. Now, I can agree with that to some, to some degree. Uh, I agree that the modern idolizing of feelings, making feelings an authority, as it were, is a problem. But we need to understand that our minds are every bit as fallen as our emotions. Think about Proverbs chapter 3, where Solomon says, Lean not on your own understanding. 
Proverbs again and again warns about being wise in your own eyes. Don't put all your trust and confidence in your reason because your mind is fallen and darkened by sin. In Ephesians Ephesians 4, Paul says, fallen man is darkened in his understanding. He is futile in his thinking. It's not just your emotions that need to be checked against the word of God. It's your thinking as well, your mind and your heart, your mind and your guts. Both fallen, both in need of redemption, both in need of transformation. Our thinking and our feeling need to be renewed, transformed, and sanctified. And that's what David is showing us here. God does exactly this through his word. Through his word, he renews our thinking. Through his word, he renews our hearts, our guts, our emotions, our desires. Your head and your heart need to be consecrated to God. If you're going to pursue joy in the right way, if you're going to find joy, your mind and your your, your feeling need to be submitted to God and consecrated to God and devoted to Him. That's how you become a living sacrifice. More could be said there, but let's go on. Verse 8. David says, I have set the Lord before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. David says, I shall not be moved. I've got God at my right hand. Remember, David is composing this psalm in a crisis situation. David's not sitting in the comfort of a palace as he writes this. David is on the run and his life is threatened and he's being pressured to cave into idolatry, to go after other gods. And here he says, the Lord will help him stand firm. He will draw up his battle plan with the Lord. And the Lord will give him the courage and the strength that he needs. So he will be unshakable and immovable because the Lord is with him in this crisis. The Lord is with him in battle. And that brings us really to the climax of this psalm in verses 9 through 11. In its original context, these verses express David's confidence that the Lord will deliver him and bring him into eternal joy. My heart is glad and my tongue rejoices or my whole being rejoices. Some translations say my glory rejoices. It's basically a way of David saying my whole person rejoices in God. This is describing the joy he has found in who God is and in God's gifts and in God's work and who God is for him. He has this joy in God. His heart is glad. His whole being rejoices. He goes on. He says, my flesh also will rest in hope. My flesh. There's hope for the flesh. This could could be taken a couple different ways. Is this a description of God strengthening his body, that is, his flesh, through hope? So God is using hope to renew his bodily strength. If you're depressed, bodily strength goes, you just lose bodily strength. But if you have hope, you find your body strengthened. Is that what David is saying here? That spiritual hope can bring physical refreshment. Is that David's point? Or when he speaks of rest here, is he talking about death and and basically saying, even if I die, I have a secure hope in God, my flesh will be resurrected. He's about to talk about resurrection, so that would fit in here as well. He's basically saying on that reading, there is a hope greater than death, a hope for rescue from death, a hope that will reverse death and overcome death. So whether he's talking about this hope strengthening his flesh, his body, and the here and now, or if he's talking about a hope that goes beyond death, a a hope that his flesh will be resurrected, both of those readings are true. Here's the important point. 
This is what David is saying, however you read it. David knows, David is fully confident that God will bring him body and soul through life and death into eternal joy, into eternal life, into everlasting pleasure. David is confident that God will bring him through all the crises that he's enduring. God will bring him through it all and God will restore him body and soul and bring him body and soul into everlasting joy and everlasting pleasure. David speaks here of his heart. His heart is glad. His flesh has hope. David is pointing to God's comprehensive work of redemption. It includes David's whole person. David speaks of my heart, so let's say the the inner man, the spiritual man, and he speaks of my flesh, the physical dimension of who I am. The physical and spiritual will both be redeemed. The physical and spiritual both belong to God. My whole person has security. My whole person will be saved. I have this complete security because I know God's going to bring about a physical and spiritual redemption. God has promised me a comprehensive redemption. David knows God will redeem him in body and soul and, yes, bring him into eternal joy at the Father's right hand. Now, put that on pause, this whole idea of the body being redeemed and and even bodily pleasure and all of that. We're going to come back to that. Put that on pause. We're going to come back to that towards the end, this idea of total redemption of body and soul. It's so crucial. David very clearly understands how what we believe about the future shapes how we live in the present. And that is as true in our pursuit of joy as anything else. Come back to that at the end because there's some implications there we need to work out. But now I want us to look at verses 10 and 11, which really are the climax of this. But rather than giving you my interpretation of these verses at the end of Psalm 16, I want to give you the Apostle Peter's take on these verses in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. It's interesting, Paul also cites Acts, uh, Paul also in the book of Acts cites Psalm 16. Paul has a sermon recorded in the book of Acts in Acts chapter 13 where he cites from uh, Psalm 16 along with several other Old Testament passages, but it's not quite as complete. So we're going to focus on Peter's use of Psalm 16 in his Pentecost sermon in Acts chapter 2. Peter uses Psalm 16 to really build his sermon to its great climax. When his, this is the first Christian sermon ever preached. And when it comes to a crescendo, what's there? Psalm 16. So in Acts chapter 2 in verses 22 to 25, Peter describes how Jesus' death and resurrection, how the crucifixion and the resurrection have happened according to God's plan. Jesus was put to death according to God's plan, and then God raised him up. And Peter says God raised him up because it was not possible for death to hold him. He was a righteous man, a sinless man, so death had no claim on him. Death could not hold him. But it's not just that he was sinless. Death also couldn't hold him because God had already promised through David and his words in Psalm 16 that Jesus' soul would not be left in Sheol and his body would not be left to rot in the grave. In other words, David in Psalm 16 had prophesied that the Lord's Holy One, his anointed, his Messiah, would die, but he would not stay dead long. He would undergo death, he would endure that curse, but he wouldn't stay dead for long, he would be resurrected. And then Peter quotes Psalm 16, verses 8 through 
11. And so again, note here the climactic moment of the first Christian sermon ever preached is Psalm 16 and its fulfillment in the resurrection of Jesus. That's how important Psalm 16 is. Peter makes the obvious point that David could not have been speaking about himself ultimately or primarily in these words in Psalm 16. This not being left in Sheol and your body not seeing decay. Peter says, look, David died and, and was buried and his tomb is right over there. You can go see it. No one says David experienced resurrection. So clearly Psalm 16 was not about himself. Peter says David spoke as a prophet in verse 30. That is to say, David was speaking in persona Christi, in the person of Christ. He's speaking here as if he were Christ himself. Or I, actually, I think this might be a better way to think of it. It's not so much that David here is predicting what Jesus will do. Rather, it's that Jesus was praying this prayer in Psalm 16 through David ahead of time. This is Jesus speaking of himself through David centuries before the event, centuries before the resurrection. And I think David was fully conscious of this. David knew he was a forerunner or a type of the Messiah, a preview of the Messiah in some way. He knows there will be a greater son of David who will come and he will suffer and he will die and he will be buried and his soul will descend into Sheol, but his soul will not stay in Sheol for long, and his body will not rot in the tomb. No, he will bust out of the grave in victory, in a bodily resurrection, triumphing over death. His soul will go to Sheol, but he will know the way out of Sheol. His body will be buried, but it will come bursting forth from the tomb. And not much time will go by, not enough time for his body to decay or to rot. David doesn't say it's the third day, but that's what this is about. Jesus' death and then his resurrection on the third day. Peter says in Acts chapter 2 verse 30 that David knew this would happen to God's Messiah, to a descendant of his. David knew this would happen because God had sworn an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on the throne forever. That is one who will undergo a death, but then a resurrection. And this risen king will then rule over all as a greater and more glorious David. This oath, Peter says David knew about, was sworn by God in 2 Samuel chapter 7. And 2 Samuel chapter 7 is one of the most important chapters in the whole Bible. Because if you understand that chapter and where it fits into the overall story, the overall plot line of the Bible, all kinds of things in scripture will snap into place. 2 Samuel chapter 7 is kind of like glue or stitching that webs together various sections of the Bible. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, David wants to build a house for God. David's got a nice palace for himself to dwell in as king, and so he wants to build a nice temple for God to have uh, as his house as well. But God responds to David and says, David, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house. And then God goes on to describe for David the kind of house, the, the kind of kingdom that he will build for David. God says to David, you were just a lowly shepherd and I made you ruler over my people. I exalted you to this position out of my grace. And now I'm promising you a future son, 
one who will come from your line, and he will defeat your enemies, and he will make your name great, and I will set up your seed after you and establish his kingdom and his throne forever. That's God's covenant promise to David. Now, it's interesting, uh, God's promise to David echoes the promises that God made to Abraham long before. In fact, it seems here that God is picking up threads from his covenant with Abraham and weaving them into the covenant he has made with David. The covenant with Abraham focused on a coming seed. Now we find there's another seed being promised. The seed of Abraham will also be the seed of David. The covenant with Abraham focused on a coming seed. The covenant with David does too. And of course, the seed promised to Abraham and the seed promised to David They turn out to be one and the same seed, Jesus. God will raise up a son of Abraham to be the savior and blessing to the nations. He will raise up a a seed of David to be a king who reigns over all forever. And it's really interesting. If you go to Matthew's gospel, and of course Matthew opens his gospel with a genealogy uh, of Jesus. How does Matthew and his genealogy present Jesus to us? He presents Jesus to us as a son of Abraham and a son of David. A son of Abraham and a son of David. He is the one in whom these promises are fulfilled. God promised a son to Abraham to bless the nations and a son to David to rule the nations. And in Jesus, all this comes to pass. He is that son. Jesus is the one who will unlock blessing for the nations. He is the one who will defeat the enemies of God's people, including death. He is the one who will reign over all in perfect righteousness and wisdom and love. And incidentally, if Jesus had not been raised from the dead, if his body was still in the tomb like David's body was still in his tomb, Peter's whole interpretation of Psalm 16 would have been very easy to refute. They could have just pointed to Jesus' tomb. They could have produced his corpse. At this point, when Peter's preaching on Pentecost, it's now been 50 days since Jesus' death. His body would have been rotted by this point had he not been raised on the third day. But no one could refute Peter's preaching. Why? Because the tomb of Jesus really was empty. And even the opponents of the gospel knew that. Even those who refused to believe knew this to be a fact. And that's why Peter says in verse 32, we are all witnesses of this fact that God raised him up. In other words, we all know this has happened. Peter did not try to prove Jesus' resurrection. He didn't have to. Rather, he used the resurrection to prove that Jesus fulfilled Psalm 16 and the Davidic covenant. That's the heart of his sermon. Peter did not reason to the resurrection as a conclusion. He reasoned from the resurrection as a premise. The resurrection is a premise in his argument for arguing that Jesus is the Messiah. Because Jesus is resurrected, the promises of God and the covenants of God are fulfilled in him. See, this is the thing, going back to 2 Samuel, God's promise in 2 Samuel to to David. After God made that promise to David that he would have a son who would reign forever, things went really bad for Israel. In fact, things went really bad for the house of David. Every king after David died and stayed dead and their corpses decayed 
Most every king after David was a disaster for the nation. Not only were the kings bad, but the nation went bad. The nation of Israel descended into division and idolatry and finally exile, which was a kind of death for the nation. The nation came under God's curse. And so, of course, people who believed the promises, people who were clinging to the promises in those days were wondering, what about God's promise to David? Where is great David's greater son? Where is this glorious king we've been promised, the king who will rule forever in perfect wisdom and love and glory and righteousness? Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 2 is the answer to that question. Peter uses Jesus' resurrection and Psalm 16 to answer those kinds of questions. Yes, Jesus suffered a wretched death, a cursed death, a bloody death. He endured exile himself, being cast out of the city. He endured the curses of the covenant. What was he doing? He was taking on the punishment his people deserved to satisfy the wrath and the justice of God against the sins of his people. He really did die under the curse, but before his body even had time to decay, God raised him up and made him king over all. And that is why Peter says in verse 36, let all the house of Israel know for certain that this Jesus whom you crucified has been made by God both Lord and Christ. He is the king who rules over all. He is the Messiah who has been sent to save you. What is Peter saying in his sermon? Jesus' reign is established by his resurrection. He reigns through resurrection. His reign is established through his resurrection. And so now you can see how it all fits together. How all these lines of scripture converge in Christ. How all the threads of the Bible are tied together in Christ. God's promises, David's prophecies, Peter's preaching. They all find their fulfillment in the risen Jesus. Jesus is the one who fulfills God's oath in 2 Samuel 7. He is the one who fulfills David's prophecy in Psalm 16. He is the one who has conquered death and restored the creation and reigns forever. He has opened the floodgates to eternal joy for God's people. He brings us to the place where there are pleasures forevermore. We're actually going to come back. We'll talk about the implications of some of this next week. So I want, to have, I want us to have time to kind of soak in this and, 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 and think this through. But what is Psalm 16 telling us through, through Peter's preaching in Acts chapter 2? It's nothing less than this. The resurrected Christ is now reigning over all and that means he is flooding the world again. But this time God is flooding the world with joy and blessing and life. That flood of blessing has already begun, but that flood of blessing will ultimately fill the entire creation. The entire creation will be filled with the joy and the happiness of God himself. Death is dead. Long live the King, King Jesus. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.